I think that every CISO role is an interim CISO, right? Oh, I like that. Welcome to Life After CISO, where we'll talk about your next play as a successful technology executive and steps you can take now to prepare for the journey. Welcome back to Life After CISO. It's great to be back in the studio after a long break, and it's a pleasure to welcome two fascinating conversationalists to the show today. But before I jump into introducing them, I wanted to really set the stage for today's topic by explaining what I was up to in early 2023. So I got a call in December of 2022 about taking on an interim CISO opportunity at none other than Silicon Valley Bank. Now, those of you who tuned into my first episodes will note that it's not one of the options that was on my radar. You know, while I previously talked about advisory work, board governance, teaching, and many more things, I never really had run across the idea of an interim executive when it came to a cybersecurity leader. But it became a pretty compelling story as I started to talk to them. And between the allure of the brand, I think SVB was on the end of virtually any angel or fund investment wire transfer, for example, and then the closed-end nature of the opportunity, meaning that it wasn't a long-term commitment, it wasn't going back to being a CISO, it was a chance to um, get in and out and make a, a large impact, hopefully. Um, when you put that all together, it, it was compelling, and I thought it was worthwhile. And so the idea that I'd just step in at a crucial time for them for just six months while they conducted a more exhaustive search to find their permanent CISO made a lot of sense. So I like the idea of jumping in and, and not a long-term commitment. So the actual experience at Silicon Valley Bank it ended up being wildly different, of course, than anything I could have imagined. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and you know, I might get into that a bit during the show today. But, of course, their sudden and unexpected collapse into FDIC receivership and then bankruptcy in March had a lot to do with, with, with the experience and my memories of it. And, and that's a real you know, unicorn of an experience. Um, and it's not something that I think people have to think about actively when evaluating opportunities. It's, it's such a rare occurrence. Now that I'm back, um, I couldn't help but to think about using that experience and how it opened my eyes to yet another chapter in the book of what somebody can do after being a CISO. So I sought out peers that had also had the same experience and, and um, maybe not the same experience, but had also gone through uh, interim CISO positions. And so I'm really excited uh, about the, the two guests that we're going to have on today. So Yael Negler runs Yas Partners, which is an Office of the CISO Consultancy out of the D.C. area. And Robin Sundaram is the CISO at Relics, the parent company of LexisNexis. And both of them I like to think of as my CISO spirit animals. They both ran into interim CISO experiences. And now I don't usually do long bio intros for my podcast guests because I trust that my listeners can find you on LinkedIn and catch up on your professional trajectory that got you here. But at the same time, I wanted to give listeners a little context on where you're speaking from and the experience that not only underpinned your reflections today, but the viewpoint that you would have had when you were initially presented with an interim CISO opportunity. What are, the, what are some of the most formative professional experiences that define your worldview on cybersecurity? Sure. So, so I've been in cybersecurity now for 25 years. And I graduated from Purdue University and then went over to Schlumberger large oil field services company that people really haven't heard of to, to sort of kickstart their uh, cybersecurity program. And this was back in 1997 when cyber wasn't really anything. 
until we had that wave of viruses like I Love You and Nimda and whatnot. And and suddenly my role became from a like a small research engineer to running North and South America operations for for, for the company. And kind of advanced that way where we started talking to the board. And then eventually I went over to ChoicePoint, became LexisNexis, became Relax. And and again, another company that does a lot with personal data and, and impacts the world, but not a lot of people know about it. Um, so, so we like to keep it that way. But but the impact that the company has on, on the world is immense. And, and my role for the last decade plus really has been around securing all of our digital assets, whether it's public record information on all American uh, residents or um, journal information by all researchers or case case law and records that touch every lawyer in the world. I think most of my formative experiences have been related to security incidents, unfortunately. And, and that's because when a security incident happens, all sorts of stuff goes wrong, right? And, and so as an example, in 2013, we had a security incident at LexisNexis, and that ran the gamut from phone calls from Brian Krebs, a published article about the incident, regulators, um, customers, CEO interactions, really sort of for the first time for me, and 18-hour days for six weeks straight on. And, and that's what really elevated my role and then kind of the role of cybersecurity within Relax. And so that was a big deal from where cybersecurity was sort of one of those adjunct functions where it had to be done, but it didn't matter so much to where it became core and critical to the company. And I was right in the middle of it and was lucky enough to then kind of move up the ranks. So so that's the biggest transformative experience of my career. Wow, yeah, it's pretty massive. And how about you, Yael? So thank you. I'm really excited to be chatting with you and Robin uh, about this. My most formative, I think, professional experiences that inform my cybersecurity position is having been through so many inflection points at different corporations. I think I don't sometimes don't realize like where you are today until you kind of like reflect backwards. Um, And so I was at early in my career, Priceline, before their IPO, helping them to launch their hotel product because I studied hotel pricing strategies. And I can yada yada my way to being at Anderson before and then during Enron and having to be on client projects and communicate what was going on, but you know, relatively young in my career. And then I was at Bear Stearns just before the financial collapse and they failed into JP Morgan. Um, and I was at JP Morgan while they were quickly acquiring and integrating other companies, Washington Mutual, because of other failed assets. And then I spent about a decade after those failings, like the corporate cooler at BlackRock, um, right after they had integrated iShares and they grew from 3 trillion to 9 trillion, um, you know, assets under management, 10,000 to 15,000 employees. And I think the summary of my formative career that inform my cybersecurity is having been through so many different inflection points at different corporations and having to find the patterns in all of them. So whether you were growing, constructing, markets were changing, it was really about understanding the decision-making structure at the organization, the communication philosophy and execution engine at the organization, their approach to crisis management and how they like stood up the team and communicated or made decisions 
And then overall, like the comfort level with change at the company, you know, talking about the risk appetite is, is the wrong word, but like it's the comfort level at the company. And so for me, having been through all those different inflection points, I think is why I'm so drawn and passionate about this space and this time really in cybersecurity and risk management. Sure. Yeah, you, you phrase that really diplomatically when you say inflection points, because when, when you touch on the specific ones, <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, I, I've also been at ground zero for these massive, <laughs> I wouldn't quite say disasters, but these elements that have nothing to do with us or cybersecurity. But I think a lot of times we learn more out of crisis than, of course, than we would out of keeping the lights on. So I, I have a, a funny question for you, though, Yale, based on what you just mentioned. I recently noted, I said you could tell someone's age or, or like kind of what professional generation they're from by how they emotionally feel when they are shredding paper. So whenever you put things in the shredder, <laughs> do you just bristle? <laughs> so it was really funny because I just did a bunch of shredding this weekend. Yeah. And I think that my approach to it totally changed. Like I now stack it up before I shred it and I do one final review <laughs> at that time before I shred it. And then I like feel really satisfied that I know exactly what I'm shredding and it's oh, okay. Yeah. It's you have a witness. <laughs> you have oh, a witness like, sign papers. To my children. I'm like, you have to be sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I teach at Georgia Tech and in my course, and it's, I made up the course, is called Enterprise Cybersecurity Management. And I think that's a pretty good catch-all label for everything that, that we do professionally, at least, and how we interact professionally. And so in my syllabus, as a result, I go from kind of soft skills like talent management, departmental organization, over for a bit into more technical areas like incident response and some kind of um, case studies and forensics. And then I'm back to board governance, risk management, before you know it, red teaming and application security. So all over the place. So all that to say, you know, the CISO area touches a lot in a lot of technical and non-technical areas. So for for each of you, and we can go in reverse order this time and start with Yale. Um, what are the the areas, the topics that you're known? Because you have to touch all those to some degree. But what are the areas that you're known for having the most conviction, or wh where are you most likely to raise your hand and stand up at the dinner and say, "Hold on a minute, I got a different opinion on this." I think the thing that I am going to raise my hand at is always about the practical execution. Great idea, but it's too many clicks away from where we are today. Or great idea, but this peop this crowd isn't going to bite off on that. Um, and I think it's always in the execution part that mm -hmm. I'm going to think through whatever is being suggested in the, can we start this tomorrow? Or how would we get it done? And I think it's often the area that just isn't thought of. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much that I'm arguing it. Is that there's like some element of situational awareness that I think is the differentiation really and like the critical link in security that is the area where I'm often the loudest. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely amplify that that's, that's absolutely critical. I mean, it gets into not letting perfect be the enemy of good sometimes, doesn't it? And not being theoretical. The first step is the biggest step. Yeah. How about you, Robin? Yeah, I think for me, I think I'm known as the what problem are we trying to solve guy because I don't care for the security status quo. And I think I'll challenge much more on the true risk versus security theater. You know, like 
I'll talk about third-party risk management and how pointless it is. And I've spoken before about encryption at rest and, and what a low risk mitigation it provides. And, and so when I speak to whether it's my stakeholders, to the board, et cetera, I try to bring that same perspective in to tell them or ask them, what do you want us to do? And why do you want us to do it? And, and what are we accomplishing from doing X? And, and, and asking those questions to make sure we're going into it sort of eyes wide open uh, from an investment of resourcing perspective. Sure. Yeah. And I certainly appreciate that that viewpoint. And if you ever need someone to back you up on these um, unpopular points of view, I, I'm usually aligned with you on that. Uh, so, so thanks both. So getting into the meat of it, um, interim CISO opportunities. Um, you, you know, I, I, after going through that myself, I started looking for like-minded individuals to see how common it is to have an interim CISO and learn a little bit about it. And in, in both of your cases, um, I found it, you know, I had never known that before that you had done something similar. So I'm starting with you, Rob, and can you talk a little bit about the interim CISO opportunity that you had? Sure. Um, so this was 2015, 2016-ish. And I was CISO at Relax, and one of our sister divisions, daughter divisions, I guess, Elsevier, their CISO left the organization, and their CTO asked me if I could fill in for just a few weeks. And I'm like, sure, I can do it for just a few weeks. And that stretched into a few months to 12 months eventually before we finally got a person hired on. And, and so, and, and in the middle of which we also had a security incident within that division. So it, it was a big old challenge. I know we'll speak about it more dur during the rest of the conversation, but um, that was the experience sure. running, essentially being a CISO for the parent company, as well as for a $2 billion division wow. that deals with health data and research information and, 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 and whatnot. Yeah, that's tough. And how about you, Yael? Um, so mine was a little bit more recent, but similarly, hey, can you help out for you know a couple of weeks? Um, a client of Yaz Partners had a director of InfoSec in seat, a publicly traded real estate finance company, about 1,500 employees, largely domestic, and their director of information security left as they were redefining. And you know, part of our work was to help shape and communicate what the revised strategy around other change and i was asked hey you're the one who knows it the best the t you know you've at least been familiar and introduced to some of the team and the personalities could you just on the interim basis carry the torch of this change while we we while we reseat a permanent person um and not let us lose some of the positive momentum uh, and that turned into nine months um, but they did place the a person there and i would say that that whole you know experience and the opportunity to which i'm sure we'll get into um help them go from the kind of role that they had to the person that nine months later they hired for a different role was actually made sense although you don't know it in the time um, you have to kind of like see that opportunity and and play that but that was the context there and so in the first week of officially playing that role, but still on an, you know, on an interim visiting basis, um, we had a board meeting and, you know, we said, we need to be sure of this before you go communicate this to your board and what the goal is. Um, so it was a very interesting nine month journey. Sure. Yeah. And you know what, when I think about this topic, I feel like it'd be more 
I'd, I'd say more, if not as, as much, uh, of interest to people who are who are not cyber, who are looking to fill an interim role for the hiring managers. In other words, I feel like they need the support group <laughs> more than the than the CISOs and the candidates do. I mean, I think there's going to be value coming out of this discussion for people who might get approached to be an interim CISO. But I think even more, it'll be the 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 board members and the presidents and the the CEOs and CIOs and CTOs who may think they need an interim CISO, I think they're the ones who are really kind of alone. You know, there's not a, you know, when an interim CFO or something like that, it's happened a million times. But with an interim CISO, that's where it's challenging to figure out what's, you know, what's really reasonable there. So, you know, talking about that a bit, uh, I'll share my experience on that one and, and lead out into that discussion. So in my case, the bank where I went, Silicon Valley Bank, they had um, a, a CISO change coming up. Um, it, it was, you know, relatively short notice, and th- at the same time, they had grown really fast, and they had a ton of regulatory pressure. And it was one of those things where they had blown through a few thresholds that brought in increased scrutiny from the FFIC and the Fed, particularly. And you know, it's just—I hate to say it—but it's just in vogue now. A regulation on that level is always going to have a big cyber lens on it. And so they got all this cyber pressure and they hired a lot of people um, and they got a lot of um, regulatory, you know, mandates and you need to do this and that and where's this program. And and then to introduce a, a leadership change in the middle of that, I think there was a lot of optics that were the challenge there of, you know, of all the answers that we're going to have for this regulator one of them can't be, oh, yeah, we've got no one at the wheel. <laughs> you know, that was just going to be awful. So there was a ton of pressure, I'd say, to have a good story to accompany that narrative of a changeover in leadership. And so to, it, it was interesting because I think they wanted to have somebody with a pedigree, right? Because they wanted to be able to, to sell that story of, look, don't worry, we, we, you know. And at the same time, they didn't want to rush a hire, a big hire. You never want to try to find someone in a few um, weeks or even a couple months, you want to have the time. So I, I, and I think that's, while it's a unique situation, I don't think that's completely uncommon for people who are hiring interim CISOs in a traditional manner, just having to fill that gap and have competent leadership and not look negligent and, and have, you know, show that you've done something while exercising all the time that you really need to find someone long-term. So, you know, that's one scenario where people would, would hire an interim CISO. Um, are, are there other credible situations that, that come to mind for either of you of why someone would, would look to hire an interim CISO? I'll jump in. I mean, I think another reason to hire interim, and that one, I, I love, you know, what you described, right? Someone with a pedigree. Like, I could say the same thing differently and say somebody who has the chutzpah. Right. Because pedigree is sure it's explainable, but like then having the courage to be able to say and respond. Um, I think another scenario where it makes sense would be when where they want to be as a program actually isn't that far away, but it requires making some severe changes quickly. And the person who's going to make the change isn't necessarily the energy that they want to operate the change because culturally. So sometimes it's to like perform that surgery or to do that thing so that they can then either promote somebody from within to, you know, run it afterwards or to bring in somebody who is a 
capable scale operator and somebody who can, you know, then take the reins, but not have to make the change quickly to get there. Yeah. Different personalities. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. How about you, Robin? I mean, given your internal corporate experience, you know, can you see a, a recurring theme where companies are going to run into this? At my company, I thought it was just a failure of bench strength hmm. that if you have a CISO that's leaving and you can't replace them with someone within that same organization, that's on you, not so much on sort of cultural aspects or change agents or, 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 or whatnot. Um, and of course, I will say to the, the, the CTO's defense that he had just recently pulled over the security team into his organization. So, so there was a little bit of that. But but at, at, at least internally, if you're doing interim CISOs, I feel like it's it's a bench strength or, or, or a management chain issue. Um, but I can see the point of wanting to have a change agent in the short term. Um, we didn't do that. And I wonder, I, I was specifically told it's going to be a few weeks. You just need to kind of mend, you know, mind mind the house while we hire a new person. But if I'd known if it was going to be for a year, at the time I might have done more transformational things. Right. Yeah. That's that's tough, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and and so that gets into the next topic, which is the notion of KTLO or keep the lights on. Uh, you know, it almost feels like for most interim executives, there's a bit of that. It's, you know, make sure things don't fall apart and buy us some time to go out to market and find someone. And I, I struggle with that in security because certainly maybe in two weeks, it's, if you have a two week tenure, that's one thing. But for any appreciable amount of time, there's really no, no such thing as, as KTLO in, in cybersecurity, I feel. And I think that as something like a, a CFO, you know, you have these notions of, of gap reporting and, and you have standardized accounting metrics. And I, I would suspect that a, you know, a CISO that's certainly taken someone public or worked at a public company for a while, I'm sorry, a CFO would pretty easily walk in and say and identify, oh, you're not up to snuff. You don't have um, these positions covered, you don't have these functions covered, and you don't have this data being accurately tracked. And immediately they can get to work. And more importantly, if they have a finite tenure, they can hand off the work and someone else can pick right up where they left off, thanks to generally accepted accounting principles. With CISOs, it seems like all of us have made this up as we went along over the last 20 years, and there's no gospel on it. And any different CISO that comes in is going to probably just kind of burn everything down to start from scratch in many ways or at least care a lot about this tiny little nuance, encryption at rest is going to be their thing. And that's all they're going to talk about for their whole tenure. And then when they leave, you know, Robin's going to come along and say, well, that, that's actually the least of our concerns. What about endpoint or whatever, or education or whatever it's going to be? So I think that that could be um, pretty challenging. So I'm going to ask you an impossible question to answer. So you know, how does a, a hiring manager balance the idea of, well, we don't want you to make any major changes because we're going to have someone new come along with the dynamic requirements of enterprise cybersecurity. I think I, I think you split it into two, right? Like you were saying, there's the tactical keep the lights on stuff, which is operations and then incident response. And then there's the longer term kind of uh, turn and aircraft carrier stuff of strategy and HR and resourcing. And and I think you draw some sort of line in between those in between those two, and and then if you really want just that three months interim CISO to keep the lights on, that's where you focus on. You say, look, 
we can defer multi-factor authentication across the world for three months, but we can't defer the monthly checking of vulnerability management or, or patching or, or, or whatever else. And so I, th I think that's the distinction you make if that's the role you want, right? If you want to keep the lights on CISO, you say, you do the operations, you do kind of break fixes and incident response, but defer some of the strategic multi-year stuff by a quarter because in the long in the long run, a quarter isn't that important. And there's a wiggle room, right? There's some wiggle room here where you're like, no, you've got to start on multi-factor authentication. But generally, you, you try to draw that line and, and, and keep to it as long as you can. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges is that the person making those calls on whether you have any latitude to delay something like MFA usually is the CISO, right? Right. If, if you had that kind of decision making outside of the CISO remit, you'd probably be in pretty good shape. Um, otherwise, I, oh, what about you, Yael? Do you feel like you know there is a tension there between this is security fit for the idea of maintenance and someone just walking in? So, my experience as an interim and the place that I dabble and where I've spent my career as being, you know, an agent of change is that I I can't even make the case for a keep the lights on interim. I, I, for me, interim is only in an inflection point through a transition. Whatever that transition is, it's maybe to test an idea. Maybe it's to shift the function, the department into a different part of the company. and to serve. But mm. in some way, at the end of that period, that the interim gets shot. And that way, the whole, the rest of the company that remains can hug it out and be like, we shot that interim. Maybe we shot them because we <laughs> achieved it. We don't need them anymore. We got it done. Or maybe we're like, oh, that whatever they did was terrible and they're out of here and we will now do this, which either is to go back or to go forward. But there's something about knowing that that interim role ends, I think that unlocks mm. change or helps to unstick things. So my context is entirely different. I, I don't think I can even remark on a keep the lights on interim role. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's really interesting. And, and I totally get it. I, I, I get the point of, you know, even, yeah, I, I, when I teach, I'm a, what's called a professor of the practice, it means I'm non-tenure track. And I, I've met some of my other professors of the practice. And you know, the first thing I would say to them is, this seems so great because we have no ambitions. Unlike anything else we've ever done in our careers before, right? we're, we're not trying to get promoted. We're not trying to make everybody you know, necessarily um, – we're not trying to get papers published and, and all of that stuff that the poor tenure track faculty are totally preoccupied with. We're just there to teach, to teach some students, and, and that's it. And it allows us to, you know, question some things and call some babies ugly, <laughs> right? And I, and I think that that's right. I also think that on an interim, you know, role, you get hired or whoever that, or the decision gets made that we're comfortable with an interim because whoever was making that buying decision felt some kind of reaction to whatever they heard. Otherwise they could have gone with a different solution or a different interim mm. firm. But there was some like, oh, you get what we need to do and you can do that here at this time um, that gives that person permission and gives the hiring manager a little bit of confidence, right? So to your point about like, 
you know, we're not, no one's trying to make this fit for a long time. So it's not that big of an investment to like change it up, or it's not that big of a risk to go a different direction, either for the person playing the interim role or for the hiring manager. Um, it, it provides this, you know, opportunity to not really care because <laughs> everyone knows it's going to end and that's permission to do whatever you want with yeah. that. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I mean, I think they're very different scenarios, right? And, and the optics one where it's almost a PR situation. And in that case, who knows? I mean, maybe an organization in that capacity doesn't feel an operational risk. Maybe they feel like, you know, we wouldn't have done this except that if you're explaining you're losing and we don't want to have to tell whether it's internally in the, in the board or whether it's it's externally in regulation, um, why we have all the continuity. We just want to make sure that you know that they they pass over our situation and say, okay, yeah, something prudent is being done here. Whereas you, the, the situation you're describing, it can be a vehicle for change. It can be you know a way that even if you had no external pressure to putting an interim, it might be a, a strategy. It might be a real tactical way to come in. You know, that brings me to another thing I wanted to talk about. So whether you're brought in because you're supposed to shake things up and, and make a bunch of changes and then be the sacrificial lamb, if you will, um, or whether you're brought in to keep the lights on and that turns out to be the farce that I kind of think it is too. And so you still end up making a bunch of changes. But either way, how do you uh, because it's so personal and because it's such a new field and because every CISO has a different focus area, um, how do you minimize the disruption to the organization and the staff that happens during a change and to keep it from happening twice, right? So you come along, everybody runs to a different side of the boat, totally different priorities. The staff in particular are having to completely recalibrate. That's bad enough. And then three months, six months, 12 months in, they finally move on to the permanent. And so how do you, uh, you know, minimize the chances that that person is going to run to the other side of the boat? And now that staff is going to have to go through double the disruption. Um, I think it's with documentation. I think there's a different level of documentation um, that is incumbent upon an interim to then somebody who's filling the role permanently. And that documentation is, I've studied it, even before they talk to their own security team, the people that they are coming to manage, they have to be at a point where they can document what they want to say mm. and what they want to do that becomes an evidence and a record and it builds a story so that for transition, it exists. It can be shot down, but it forces intentionality, specificity, and then buy-in. If you can document it with your own management team, with the peers, with your seniors, that everything has to be documented to a different level, um, for me, is one way to reduce the disruption. Mm. So, so, so I was in a different spot when I started, right? Because I thought it was going to be just a few weeks. And, and so that as, as that stretched, my guide, I tried to keep kind of the glide path as smooth as possible. So, so there were two things I insisted on that were maybe a little bit different from my predecessor. One was around accountability delivering when you say you will. And the second was around metrics and sort of operational metrics. So I knew being far away from the action, what was happening in that part of the organization. So those were the two non-negotiables. But apart from that, I left most of the rest of the program as it was with the stated and specific intention that my the successor would come in and they would leave their own imprint on the program. And, and so I was trying to make the transition from the prior incumbent to me, relatively smooth, knowing that there was a big change coming 
in a few weeks. Now, if I'd known again, right, the, the, this timeline piece is really important because I think our stakeholders overestimate how quickly they can get a new hire in, for example, or, 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 or they think an interim role is shorter than it actually ends up being. And so to get that clarity and then plan another 40% after that is really important when you step into a role, because otherwise you sort of end up in a CISO purgatory, <laughs> which is what I ended up in, because every two months there was a, well, we shouldn't change much more because there'll be a new person. These interviews are happening and they'll be right here. And and, and, and so I think you've got to be really clear going in. And I think one of my biggest regrets is that I should have made a few changes and ignored kind of the timeline. Mm. And I did. You know, it's, yeah, it's funny. That totally makes me think of a, of a completely different topic, which is how many, how many times have you run into, yeah, this is a problem, a risk, some kind of tactical risk in the organization, but it's okay because we're going to deprecate that product in just a month. Right. We're going to spin off that subsidiary documentation, documentation, yeah, documentation on January 8th. We identified, we communicated, it was reported that we would be, de- you know, decommissioning a buy calendar entry has been marked for that yep. date in April. Yeah, but I mean, to, to Robin's and, point and 10, and 10 years later. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to, to Robin's point and, and, and to build on the right, we don't get paid to explain why we failed and that it wasn't our fault, but rather to avoid the failure. To Robin's point, you almost got to say, well, I'm going to fix it anyway. I, you know, <laughs> I mean, you don't want to spend $20 million fixing it, but if it's just a matter of, well, we're going to start going down that road and, well, you're wasting time, so we'll prove it to me. You know, actually spin the thing off, shut it down, have there nothing left to patch, and then I promise you we won't be patching it. But until then, you almost, and, and I mean, in, in enterprises, right, the classic is the, there's no development team left on the code base, right? You get a legacy product or you acquire something and the developers aren't even there. So, um, but it's okay. Cause it's going to be gone in three months. You should pause, but we need to like pause on that because I think that happens a lot more than people realize Oh yeah, with a lot of homegrown innovation that if you're, if your company is older than 20, you know, 2020 or maybe 2010 that exists. Cool. In companies, yeah, I think that that's a very interesting point. Spot on. I never thought of that pattern, but it is the pattern. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hey, hey, on the topic of like tips and tricks of to avoid the double disruption, one thing that I identified, I was trying, and because things ended in such a bizarre manner, we never got to see if it was a good move or not. But w- what I thought was, um, you, you know, because. I, I was asked to make a lot of change, you know, let, let's, let, let's drive a lot of new programs that we need and let's reevaluate everything, but be gone in six months. Right. And so one of the things I thought of, was I, and I, I don't think you can do this in an official capacity, but I put together a little cabal of candidates of people, you know, I, I had names I would give up to HR and say, you know, this person should be on your radar. They'd be a good candidate. And that's the official channel. But then I separately had my way of reaching out directly and saying like, hey, by the way, I'm throwing your name in for this. That's neither here nor there. You may or may not hear about it. But what I really wanted was to get a group, and I think there were five or six of them, CISOs that I put together and said, anytime I'm going to make a major decision, I'm going to bounce it off of you. And uh, you know, I'm not going to do things just because it's what everybody else does. But I, if all of you or the majority of you say, I certainly unwind that <laughs> as soon as I come in, 
then you know to your point robin i'm while i may have lived with it if it was going to be mine for 10 years i didn't think i could afford to put that on the org if it was very idiosyncratic to jerry right so i had a sounding board to just say is this likely to be unwound and if so i said well maybe i need to tone down a little bit and go a little more mainstream just to minimize disruption so i'm not sure uh, again, because it's it's somewhat unofficial, right? Imagine the legalese that would go into papering up having the sounding board and making it official. This was all informal, uncompensated, just friends. Um, so, but I do think that it's you know for someone hiring an interim, that idea should be thought of. And and if if you're planning on bringing someone long term, how do you kind of vet major decisions? And maybe that means bringing in a, a, a mini advisory board of CISOs in addition to the person sitting in the seat. Does that seem like a terrible idea? I love it. I mean, our SOW in the case that we played interim was for a CISO squad, was actually the SOW. Um, and the role was, yeah, I played the CISO, but there were other consulting partners who were named and compensated and signed NDA that brought different skills. And we just architected the circle. We brought tech risk management and metrics and reporting. We brought technology operations. We brought threat hmm. intel. We brought a PM. And we brought someone who knew all tools because I was like, we're using them with all the tools. So they were all read in fully and they provided advisory and they often would meet with the governance committee or the board that's how we could do tabletops. We now had like the person from, you know, you know, three-letter agency, retired attorney to who was part team anyway, informing threat intel, but could also connect a tabletop very or scenario analysis or report on the Ukraine war or as it was occurring. Um, and interestingly, the person that they hired permanently was one of those. Oh, you know, that that's that's great. I, I hadn't thought about that, but I mean, we might have just architected the answer to, to the question there. Maybe that's – and I see sitting CISOs that aren't planning on going anywhere more and more these days enlisting advisory you know, groups of usually um, former CISOs, right, because always who has the time to do this, uh, as a sounding board. But maybe the point is that really has a specific function and purpose during an interim period, right, just to kind of vet those decisions and make sure they're most likely. And it gives you this great candidate pool – without scaring anyone off who doesn't want to do it full time and they can get used to the company a bit. What I thought was most surprising actually in the whole candidate, which I didn't anticipate, and I still, you know, have mixed feelings about it because it was somebody who, you know, worked with Yaz and was on other projects. Um, but what was really rewarding was it was a way for that CISO or really a bigger role to get to interview the company and get to see inside and yeah. is this a place that I'll fit in? Are these the kinds of people? When I make a suggestion, will they get it done? And like, I actually got to see everything. So it was kind of a remarkable, you know, benefit there too. Yes. It's fascinating because I hadn't thought of it the way you said it, um, Jerry, but I had my own CISO advisory council while I was doing this interim role because we have four divisions in Relax and, and three of them had CISOs who were all contributing. When I, when I was talking about the Elsevier security program, the other CISOs were piling on because they could. They knew the company, they knew sort of the environment and they could give advice of this, I wouldn't do this, Here, here's some challenges, et cetera, et cetera. So I, th I think that is an awesome idea. We even had a couple of people from the other divisions who worked with me interview for the role, for the role, but the hiring manager at the time was intent on bringing in someone from the outside, uh, 
sort of halfway into the interview process. So, so be it. But I think that's a great, great thing Yale mentioned is kind of bring people into interim CISO roles who can then interview for the, for the full role. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Um, and yeah, I think we might've actually come up with something <laughs> tactically useful for someone considering hiring an interim CISO. Uh, so switching over, you know, we've been speaking so far, I, I've been focused a lot on the person hiring and you know, what kind of questions they would have and trying to help them out before they just jump into um, bringing in, opening up a, an interim role like that. And so how about a candidate pool, right? So, so for those of us and our peers who might get approached for one of these things, um, you, you know, the way I phrase my notes on this is what guardrails you, you put on yourself. And that could be a, a number of things. We talked a little bit about whether you want to take on projects that are particularly contentious or even personalized that aren't less likely to stand the test of time during a switchover. But also, you know, what, what, how about in staff, right? Because it's highly disruptive. They already know you're going to go, though. It's not like it's a secret. So, you know, what, what guardrails did you put on your interactions with staff and teams and even peers um, that you wouldn't have if you were going to be permanent? I don't think I'd put any guardrails because I was going to be around anyway, right? Because I was still part of Relax, the parent company. So I didn't really put any guardrails on communications. But I, but I will say this. Um, you do have, I, I felt like I started off with kind of a little bit of a lack of authority because people knew I was interim within that organization. Um, and then we had a security incident mm. that we had to deal with. And then suddenly everyone's really interested and supportive and, and everything else. So I wonder when you're in that interim CISO role, especially if it's you know time delimited for 90 days or six months or whatever, if you start off with a little bit of an authority deficit, which you then have to build back up, whether it's through solid execution mm -hmm. or God forbid, an excellent response to a crisis of some sort, whether it's a security incident or regulators coming in or, 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 or whatever else. So I have like a slightly different angle again, because my interim role was very specific and designed. I mean, again, I don't know the duration. I, I didn't anticipate it, but I had strong guardrails. Um, and I did it by stakeholder. So with um, my peers, so all of the other department, I would bring with me the staff member in the security group who should own that relationship or be aware of that relationship. So on every email, I would copy them. I would bring them, even if I led all of the conversation and I wrote all of the email, I always included the staff member who should be in charge. With staff in peer departments, so like my peers one layer down, like across tech and engineering, I almost always directed it to, the, to security staff to have them respond because you need that's just how it should be. Like level to level across functions should just exist that way. Um, with executives, I always copied my sponsor, whoever was bringing me in as the interim. And if another senior executive reached out, asked for a meeting, I always informed that sponsor. With vendors, very quickly, I appointed somebody in the security department to be the business manager and kept them in the middle of anything vendor related. But I spent a lot of time with the security staff. I invested a ton of energy with each person individually because that's why I'm here is to have them be one level up and be ready for whatever is going to come after the interim role and whatever is going to happen next. And whatever they care to do in their future, they should understand their path for it. I spent a lot of time there. So I felt sometimes like a ghost 
for folks outside of security, or I was always bringing somebody else in. Um, but I spent a lot of time with the specific security team. Yeah. You know, I, I did find that when it comes to the authority, for example, so w- when I came on you know, during the interview process, I already started getting the, whether it was from HR or the hiring manager or the board, because in that case, you interview directly with the board uh, or the CEO for that matter. I started getting that, like, would you consider, you know, staying? Would you consider it? And the way I put it was, you know, that's not in my plans. Anything is possible. When I went to my uh, my longtime CISO gig at ICE, I started as a six month contractor, and before you know, I was there for twenty years. So I would bring that up to say, I, I, I would say, there's hope. Um, but you know, a they need to see whether they re- really want me. And there's nothing better than an interim period. Um, and, and then B, you know, that's not where my life has been headed and that's not where my head is. And right now, one of the only reasons I can even consider this is because there's an, you know, an endpoint on it. Now, that said, I found during my interactions that staff and, and when I talk about staff, I mean, not only people on the security team, but especially the peers and in financial services and the lines of defense, right? You got a, a risk department and an audit department and operations and chief controls office and that sort of thing. I found that a lot of, people would bring that up just day to day almost you could hear them thinking out loud like is it worth i'm I'm starting to really enjoy this interaction i'm putting some you know some capital into this relationship with this person and almost like they were rationalizing it to themselves they would say like hey there is there there is a chance you're going to stick on right you you know so i to your point i i almost feel like without absent that um with absent that hope people are limited and whether it's entrusting you and giving you the authority or whether it's just confiding in you and being willing to be a bit vulnerable about whatever, you know, the departmental function it is that you're questioning during the, the risk assessment process. How do you deal with, um, you know, and, and maybe it's different on a type of organization, right? But naturally, there's going to be some organizations where the allure and the appeal has to do with the company's upside, right? Equity. Right. If somebody goes at any level to work for a startup, um, they're probably the difference maker was probably, oh, if things go well, there's going to be some stock options and that sort of thing. And so as a leader, you know, as a, as a longtime leader in that, um, you know, as a longtime leader, you're you're trying to always cheerlead a little bit about the organization. And if you sold somebody on equity, then you always want to be I'm talking about as a permanent leader, you'd be saying um, oh yeah, things. I, I'm really excited. I'm bullish about this company. It's going to be awesome. The, the vision that the CEO shared is legitimate. It's credible. And those of us in the senior leadership team um, are seeing. You know, you kind of intimate this. We're, we're we're seeing some really good progress here. It's going to be awesome. Rah rah rah. As an interim, that's off the table, right? And you you kind of there's this air always of. Yeah, it's going to work out great, but it's not good enough for me. I, I you know, I'm I'm not really interested. I, I you know, I, I almost feel that. I, you know, otherwise the staff is kind of well, well, you know, if it's so great, why why aren't you going to stick around? Have you maybe in your situations, both of you, it was it was different, or was there like a well, why is it not good enough for you to stick around? For me, that wasn't hard. Um, my whole career has bounced around. Even when I've been at the same company for 10 years, I bounce around departments. I am drawn to building or fixing and to solving a puzzle. And that's what energizes me. Um, and I will continue to pursue that. There's always the right amount of money behind it for me. That's not the pursuit. 
the pursuit is the intellectual like enjoyment. Um, I mean, obviously we need to make enough money both personally and my company. Um, but that's why I don't just stick around because it for me won't be satisfying. Okay. I guess that's a consultant did the same thing that a consultant would say to, to, to any staff. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I run a consulting company. Like this is, I, this is what I was born to do. Yeah, my experience was different, Jerry, because I was sticking on, just not going into that division. And I was offered the opportunity to sort of go off, leave this corporate role and go run the sister division. And that's not what I was interested in. I'd rather stay in corporate and sort of overall governance. So uh, because I was sticking on within Relics, I had no issue with kind of making the sell to other people within the Elsevier security organization about where the company's going, how great it's going to be. And and yes, I'm not going to be in your division, but I'm staying on yeah. within Relics Corporate. Yeah, I, I think that in both of those, you, you, what you just painted and Yael, what you mentioned as you were brought in as a known entity being with a, a consulting group and in particular being the founder of it. So you had this very clear yeah, I have my story and I'm, I'm, this is congruent with that story. It isn't too weird. Whereas I think in my situation, um, it, it, it was different, right? Because not, neither of those would apply. And, and I'll say, and, and I'm mentioning this, you know, for the podcast, just for the sake of someone evaluating it, they have to think about which one of those it is. And if it's a situation like mine, it, it, it can be challenging during the recruiting and, and retention and all of that too, because you, you can't ignore that narrative of, well, why aren't you sticking around? But you have to have a good explanation. And in my case, the best explanation was that I had been a CISO for a long time. So I, you know, I'd spent 20 years on it and how much more can you expect? And I had had my, my, my cool career trajectory now. So this is later. And I like to think that, that that was a, an adequate <laughs> explanation. Um, but you know, it's still something that I certainly thought about because, um, recruiting and building out the team was part of that quick little remit. And, uh, you know, I spoke to many people and, um, it was something I had to think about all the time was like, yeah, this is going to be great for you, but it's not great for me. I mean, I think that's interesting. I mean, wasn't there a part of you that felt like I, you wanted to test yourself to see if you could drive the change and write the direction and satisfy the needs quickly given all of your experience and how you would structure it without ruling out staying or not. But didn't, didn't you run to that because you were at a point in your career where you could kind of play around a little bit and be creative. And it seemed like an interesting, like challenge, like an obstacle course that you wouldn't get presented with otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're totally right on that. Right. It was kind of a, um, especially when, you know, I always like to say that my, my 20 year job, the company went through a lot of changes. So it felt like a lot of different roles, right? We were a small company, we we're a big company, we we're a public company, private company, all of that. So I always, you know, said that to myself and out loud that it wasn't a one trick pony that I had served in a lot of different roles with success. But nonetheless, it's like, well, you know, how much more, let me add some more credibility to that. Let me add another uh, experience set and prove that I can succeed there. And, and that definitely was a driver, not just a motivator to take the role, but I, I did feel like I absolutely have to succeed here or it invalidates everything. You know, maybe I just got lucky. Maybe I just was in the right place at the right time. So yeah, that, that was a driver. Yeah. And there was some relationship. I mean, somebody knew you, had the conversation with you, brought you in oh, right. and served as a sponsor. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You never want to burn anyone. Role. 
which is, I think, if somebody's considering being an interim, right, if they're like the same place in your career, have they having done it and looking to like roll the dice, like the key was also that relationship and the mind share. So, you know, in, in conclusion, um, I, I think we came up with some really cool tricks and things to think about and helpful tidbits for someone on the hiring side who's thinking about an interim position. Um, but, you know, to add a little bit on the candidate pool, and if you will, what, what, how do you see the future? Do you think an interim CISO is going to be uh, something common? Do you think that there will be firms that stand up that serve those like there are for fractional executives and for interim CFOs? And do you think that it's, um, <laughs> to get back on the contentious angle, do you think that the interim CISOs of the future are going to be people who have done a great job at being a CISO, that would be an awesome CISO that just don't want to do it full time? Or is it going to be people who aren't really good enough to be a CISO and that's kind of the only gig that they could get? So it, it, it's funny you said the interim CISO role isn't that prevalent. Because I was like, that, is that right? Let me go check. So I went to look for interim CISO on LinkedIn. There's 616 people with that title, wow. which is super interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's out of millions. I know it's, it's really weird, right? Um, I, I can see the interim CISO role in in cases like yours and Yale's, where uh, there was need for building credibility or for transformational stuff. But in most organizations, I would hope that they'd have enough of a management strength below the CISO so that when they leave, it's next man or woman up. And, and hopefully that's where it's going to go, especially with all the newer disclosure rules and everything else, that the overall security organizations are just going to get stronger at being able to promote someone and say, yep, you're next. It almost gets into succession planning. It is a succession planning issue, yeah. In, in most cases, right? The two of you had very specific use cases that don't fit into succession planning stuff. I think that every CISO role is an interim CISO, right? <laughs> oh, I like that. You're like, you're there for a purpose for your skill set. And once you've advanced it and matured it, if you aren't maturing in the same direction as the company, for whatever reason, then like your role is you're going to move on. There's still going to be a CISO at that company. It's going to be the next CISO because either the company's decided or you've kind of decided. Um, and I think that that's okay. And I wish that it wasn't such a discussion point, but each person brings a different skill to it. One can like seed the change. One can operate. One can scale. One can, you know, downsize one can't right, automate like and that's all okay and depending on the season you know not the same person doesn't need to do all of those things um so maybe we need to be less scared of that yeah uh, and be willing to hire for that no oh, that's helpful yeah it, it, you're, you're right and uh, um you know when you think of and i i think six months when we were talking earlier i was thinking Wow, I guess six months is has to, a CISO position has to be at least six months, but it, an interim one shouldn't be any more than six months. I feel like that's kind of the the magic number there. But to your point, Yael, that's that's not that far off of the average tenure of CISOs in many cases, anyway. So maybe it's all the same. Well, well, thanks both. It was great having you on. It's um, individually, you're people that I'd want to have on to talk about just about any topic. So being able to get you both on the same podcast episode was a lot of fun. I look forward to staying in touch. 
and I'll put some um, links into your LinkedIn profiles and people can hunt you down with any direct questions or learn more about you um, directly in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks for having us on. Great. Thank you. Thanks both. Well, that does it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the content and are looking forward to the next one. Thanks for tuning in and certainly share your feedback and ideas for future episodes.